coming to you live from New York. I'm Zane Asher in for Julia Chatley. This is First Move, and here is your need to know. Global surge, the US, Asia, and Europe all set grim new coronavirus milestones and not conceding. President Trump admits he's heading for the exit, but still refuses to formally concede. And Black Friday, without the crowds, retailers urge shoppers to stay at home. It is Friday. Let's make a move. Hello, good to have you with us on this Black Friday. U.S. investors are taking a break from the festivities, the leftover turkey and the shopping as markets reopen after the Thanksgiving holiday for half the day. They close at 1 p.m. local time here. Volume is not expected to be high, but futures are actually pointing to a positive open, which would take the Nasdaq to another record high in Europe and Asia. It is mostly green arrows across the board as well. The London FTSE is lagging the wider market again. Same on Thursday. Shares of house builders and banks are the worst performers amid doubts over the recovery in the UK. But right now, let's get to the drivers. Uh, more than 90,000 Americans are in hospital with coronavirus. The US is averaging now 165,000 new cases every single day. And that is a record high. Rosa Flores has more. As many Americans celebrated Thanksgiving, the coronavirus pandemic is reaching record levels of cases and hospitalizations across the United States. The danger of spreading the disease causing some to downsize their celebrations or even spend the day alone this year. But millions of others chose to ignore warnings from health experts not to travel. With the TSA reporting more than 6.8 million people have flown through U.S. airports in the week before Thanksgiving. This Black Friday, retailers are encouraging shoppers to go online. This year it's a lot less people. But some customers are still going inside stores, even waiting outside in lines for big ticket items. One health expert saying the holiday season could fuel the surge. It's not just post Thanksgiving, it's Black Friday and then the run up to Christmas and then New Year's. This is our holiday season and every day from now on can add to the toll. Our hospitals are almost full to capacity. In some communities, they are full to capacity. There's no more rooms in the ICU. 1,232 people in the U.S. were reported dead Thursday from the coronavirus. More than 90,000 people are hospitalized with the disease, a record. With many hospitals already running low on beds and resources, one doctor says she's fearful of what's to come. Our hospitals are already at the breaking point. Many of us are already talking about opening field hospitals next week. Many of us have colleagues who are out sick. A virus outbreak among the Baltimore Ravens forcing the NFL to postpone their Thanksgiving matchup against the Pittsburgh Steelers. They protect Jackson, who launches to Andrews. Open. ESPN and the NFL Network, citing league sources, reporting the team's quarterback, Lamar Jackson, and three other players have tested positive. And the Pac-12 canceling a game between University of Southern California and University of Colorado Boulder due to coronavirus, making it the 11th college football game canceled or postponed this week. Coronavirus-related deaths are on the rise in at least 27 states this morning, and one health expert reminds Americans that it's crucial to keep following safety guidelines even during the holidays. It is a real test of uh, maturity and also of safety to see whether or not we are able to keep our distance, continue to wear masks because we are so close 
given the vaccine candidates and where things are headed. Rosa Flores reporting there. Now, for the first time, Donald Trump has said he will, he will leave office if the Electoral College votes for Joe Biden. Let's bring in Kristen Holmes, who's joining us live now from Washington. So he says he's going to leave office, but still no sign, Kristen, that he's actually going to concede. That's right, Zane. I mean, he he was very clear that he's not going to concede. He repeated the same baseless claims that he had won the election, that there was widespread fraud, all of which there is no evidence of. And we should note, this is the first time that he has taken a single question since Election Day. He did so yesterday after he did a call with the troops, something that is a presidential tradition. Uh, But again, as you said, he said that if the Electoral College certified the election for Joe Biden, which they are expected to do, he would in no uncertain terms leave the White House. Take a listen. If the Electoral College does elect President-elect Joe Biden, are you not going to leave this building? Just so you, uh, certainly I will. Certainly I will. And you know that. But I think that there will be a lot of things happening between now and the 20th of January. A lot of things. Obviously, the 20th of January being Inauguration Day, when he says a lot of things happening before Inauguration Day, he's likely, again, talking about those baseless claims of fraud. And we have to note here, lawyers have tried to prove this in court and have provided no evidence in any way that there was widespread fraud in this election. So as Trump continues to repeat these baseless allegations about fraud, as he continues to cast doubt over the election integrity. What are the consequences of that, especially for the runoff Senate races in Georgia? Well, he was actually asked about that last night. The more that uh, he questions the election, particularly in Georgia, how is this going to affect those senators? And he said that he'd been telling Senator Perdue, who he is very close to, uh, over and over again that there were problems in that state. But Zane, I've got to tell you, you we are at a point here in the U.S. where coronavirus cases are spiking. And President Trump said yesterday that he was actually going to go down to Georgia to campaign for those two senators in that runoff election, which is January 5th. Uh, And not only was he going to go down there and campaign, he indicated that he was going to hold a big rally. As we know, several of the events he has held here at the White House and across the country have turned into super spreader events. And this is a point in time in which, again, these cases are ravaging this country. Kristen Holmes, live for us. Thank you. In Asia, there are worrying new surges of COVID-19 in places that seem to have actually done well at curbing the pandemic not long ago. Hong Kong reported its highest tally of new infections in more than three months, with 92 confirmed cases on Friday. And in South Korea, new cases jumped to more than 500 new cases on each of the past two days. The health ministry says it's discussing ways to toughen social distancing and a hugely worrying time in Japan as well after the second highest daily increase in infection since the pandemic began. Here's our Selena Wang with more. Japan reports its second highest increase in new COVID cases since the pandemic began, while Tokyo reports a record increase. Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga is encouraging people to take further precautions and to avoid crowded places. The government has warned of a possible state of emergency in coming weeks if COVID cases continue to rise. It's also asking restaurants and bars in the hardest hit cities to shorten their business hours. But the government has no legal means to enforce these restrictions. But Tokyo, for instance, is saying that if business owners comply with the request to shorten their hours, they will get about 3,800 U.S. 
dollars. Now, Japan, like all countries around the world, is trying to balance reviving the economy with suppressing COVID-19 infections. The government has been trying to boost domestic consumption, help the hard-hit tourism industry with this domestic travel campaign, offering steep discounts to encourage people to go out and eat and travel. But not surprisingly, this campaign has been controversial. The head of the Japan Medical Association says this travel campaign acted as a catalyst for this recent spike in cases. So the government has been scaling back this domestic travel campaign. Now, compared to other countries in East Asia, Japan has taken a relatively relaxed approach to COVID-19. Despite that, Japan has managed to avoid cases from skyrocketing. Experts credit that to this culture of mask wearing and generally adhering to government guidelines. So far, Japan has reported more than 140,000 COVID-19 infections and just over 2,000 deaths. Selena Wang, CNN, Tokyo. Europe's most populous country is struggling to turn back the tide of coronavirus. Germany has now topped one million confirmed cases, but there is a glimmer of hope in France. The health minister says a national target of just 5,000 new cases per day could actually be reached by mid-December. Melissa Bell joins us live now from Paris. So, Melissa, I do want to start with Germany uh, marking this grim milestone of topping one million confirmed cases. Just walk us through some of the new restrictions that Germany has announced in terms of tightening restrictions. And will they have the necessary impact of curbing the spread? That's right. I think Germany is an interesting example, Zane, just because it had so largely been spared the very worst of the first wave. This time round, things are worse for Germany than even for some of its neighbours. It's been under partial lockdown for as long as France and Belgium has, for instance, practically in terms of a couple of days difference. Uh, but so far, although the infection rates have slowed, authorities are worried that the hospitalizations, the people in ICU, the strain on the hospital system simply hasn't been uh, brought back at two acceptable levels. So we saw Angela Merkel try and fail last week to get a majority to tighten those restrictions. This week, as she spoke to the German parliament, she made clear that she'd managed to slightly tighten the restrictions. So there will be a slight tightening on things like the wearing of masks, for instance, but mostly it is about the extension of this partial lockdown, Zane. Essentially, what Angela Merkel is saying is that these restrictions are here to stay for a while in order for us to be able to get these figures back under control. So for instance, although there will be a slight loosening of the rules around Christmas time, uh, for a few days uh, into the new year, uh, they will likely then come back well into January 2021. And on that loosening, uh, that will allow people to gather together in their homes about 10 at a time. But Berlin, for instance, has announced that its figures are so bad uh, that it will be keeping the restriction to five people per household, even during the Christmas period. So uh, some particular hotspots of even more concern than the country as a whole, Zane. And Europe-wide, we're seeing what you're talking about in terms of easing the restrictions. We're seeing in Germany, we're certainly seeing in the UK, easing the restrictions around Christmas time to allow people to celebrate with their family members. Is there a fear that because of that, perhaps the virus might indeed come surging back after Christmas and then we'll see even more restrictions come January? I think that's exactly what authorities want to avoid. And I think what's remarkable about the steps that we've heard outlined over the last 24 hours from a variety of different countries about how the next few weeks are going to go is that they all seem determined to make uh, the next third wave less of an inevitability than it would seem. So, for instance, yes, France will lift restrictions in time, or at least the partial lockdown, that is, those restrictions on people's movements in time for the Christmas holiday. But only if, Zane, by December 15th, they've reached that target of no more than 5,000 new cases 
cases a month. Now, to give you uh, an idea of how difficult that's going to be, we're now at over 10,000 cases a day, uh, roughly on most days. And when this was introduced, we were at over 30 or 40,000 new cases a day. So these partial lockdowns have been effective, but very much, and it's the case in England as well, where there's going to be a reassessment mid-December about what this change into sort of different tiers across England is, whether that's worked, whether the figures have come under control enough. And it is those reassessments around the middle of December that will determine whether or not people can see a lightening of the restrictions that will allow them to meet. And really, this is about the lessons learned by authorities after the first wave. What they did was they saw restrictions lifted too far, uh, freedom retrieved too quickly, the second wave hit even harder and faster than the first had done, and they're determined that this time they're going to take a much more staggered and measured response, and in terms of the figures and their progress, only then allow a temporary lifting of the measures that will be back, let's be clear, well into January 2021. All right, Melissa Bell, life for us there. Thank you so much. Okay, these are the stories making headlines around the world. Ethiopia's prime minister says his military is beginning the final phase of an offensive against rebels in the Tigray region after a 72-hour deadline to surrender expired. The UN is urging soldiers to protect civilian lives as they try to recapture uh, the regional capital of Mekele. French President Emmanuel Macron says he's shocked by security camera footage showing police officers in Paris beating a black man. The officers involved have been suspended while an investigation is underway. The man says that he was assaulted after ducking into a building to avoid getting a fine for not wearing a face mask. And the body of Diego Maradona is now buried. The legendary Argentine football player was laid to rest on the outskirts of Buenos Aires in a private ceremony on Thursday. It follows scenes of mass adoration. This man was loved. Uh, fans formed lines uh, on the streets to pay their final tribute to Maradona. Journalist Diego Laje is in Buenos Aires for us. So, Diego, obviously crowds uh, yesterday were certainly disappointed. A lot of people not being able to say goodbye to Maradona in the way that they hoped. Um, a legend has been laid to rest. This man was a national hero, a national icon. Just set the scene for us in Buenos Aires today. Zane, I, what I can tell you is that where I'm standing right now, there is a gate behind me, the gate to the cemetery, the last gate Diego Maradona crossed into eternity, into becoming a legend. Uh, right now, Argentina is in its third day of official mourning, but that's just official. Real mourning may take days, weeks, maybe years. This place is expected to become one of the places of pilgrimage for these hardcore, really uh, 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 fans that really, really appreciate, love, respect, and have enormous gratitude for the joys he gave to millions upon millions of Argentines in the playing field. That's why, that's what explains how many people went first to Plaza de Mayo, just opposite the presidential palace where he was laid uh, in honor. And that's what explains why so many people converged uh, along the route he took. Some, he started actually some 35 kilometers away from here in downtown Buenos Aires and just cheered, sang and remembered him. Uh, and that is how Argentina feels now, deep sorrow, and at the same time, deep gratitude for one of Argentina's greatest sons and, of course, a hero starting today, now a legend, Zane. And people on the other side of the world, I mean, it's not just in Argentina, people on the other side of the world in Italy are also 
paying tribute. Obviously, he meant so much to Naples, to the Napoli uh, soccer club. Just, just walk us through that because there are now conversations about renaming the city stadium in his honor as well. What did he mean for Napoli football fans? Well, for Napoli, it's probably the best thing that could happen because remember, Diego Maradona is loved and idolized in two special, especially in two parts of the world. One in Argentina, of course, that's obvious. He played here for so many years, but also in Napoli. Diego Maradona was the star that helped Napoli reach international uh, championships that took them uh, you know, into and led them into uh, a, a stage that uh, made a huge difference in that city. This is why he has so many fans there that, like fans here, share this love and gratitude for all the joys and happiness that he gave to them. Because it's hard sometimes to convey how soccer, how football, uh, how football fans feel about the game. It is something so deep. It is something so meaningful in their lives. And just imagine the man who makes your uh, club, uh, who leads your club into like a national, international uh, title, into an international championship, is the man who is responsible and who will uh, you will feel gratitude gratitude for for all those enormous uh, joys and honors that of course as a fan of a club you also share in when your club does very well and probably that is what Maradona is in Napoli and what, of course what Maradona is across the the vast territory of Argentina given that he was uh, the national jersey that he wore every time he played was the Argentine jersey Zane and Maradona of course you know we've talked about this you know on 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 air a lot but he he leaves behind this wonderful but yet extremely complicated legacy I mean obviously he struggled with health issues um, there was addiction issues as well but the fans loved him regardless it almost didn't matter to, to them just walk us through this tension between Maradona on the pitch and Maradona off the pitch such a different man on the pitch he was perfect absolutely perfect you see him play and some fans refer to him as a poet with a football. Now, his personal life was different, but what people really appreciate, here in Argentina especially, is that he was who he was. He was authentic, he was spontaneous, he said what he thought, and he thought, what he didn't think very much what he said, but he really felt what he said. This is probably the most important thing for everybody here. He's authentic. He was the real deal. He was not a fake that was, for example, saying one thing one day, then changing his mind or thinking some other way. Of course, he had a very difficult fight against two addictions. One, cocaine. His fight against cocaine, he spoke openly about it. Um, he sought redemption through family life, through love, and he uh, asked for the pardon, especially of his loved ones, for all the complications cocaine brought to his life. And then after that, he continued a fight against alcohol that many believe he didn't quite win. And this is what makes him so human. 
by the, on, on the one hand, he is God. He, uh, he scored, uh, hands down, the best goal in Soccer World Cup history. And the same man appears on TV and, t and, and publicly asks his daughters and wife for uh, forgiveness. Please forgive me. I am a flawed man, he has said publicly on local TV. Uh, addressing his family and that is what makes him uh, this real uh, person that everybody everybody has an opinion about maybe good maybe bad but everybody has an opinion about Zane yeah you know what it made him so relatable he was always a man of the people and he never forgot uh, where he came from Diego Laje in Buenos Aires life for us there thank you so much all right, still to come here on First Move, serious concerns that Africa will lag behind the rest of the world in terms of getting access to COVID vaccines. And on Black Friday in 2020, a shopping dilemma. Venture out or stay at home. We've got both sides of the coin for you. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. The U.S. markets open in just a few minutes, but because it's post-Thanksgiving, it's a short uh, day of trading. That's being reflected in the futures, which are pointing to a modestly higher open. We don't expect much volatility as investors will probably look for shopping rather than stock bargains. Some concern uh, could be around emerging markets, and this just in for you. India has entered its first recession in nearly a quarter of a century, GDP, GDP fell 7.5% in the second quarter after construction of nearly 24% in the first quarter. The country has recorded the second highest number of coronavirus cases in the world. That's according to Johns Hopkins University. This is a business show, but not all costs can be put into numbers. For example, the impact this pandemic is having on mental health, for example, especially for families who are desperate for Washington to reach a breakthrough on its stimulus deal. A reminder, there are 50 million Americans who at some point this year did not have enough food to eat. Let that sink in. That's according to the largest hunger relief group in the United States. So where are we in terms of stimulus measures? Greg Valliere is chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF investments. Uh, Greg, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Thank you so much for being with us. So um, obviously the key priority now, especially over the next couple of weeks, is going to be a stimulus deal. If there isn't one, what hangs in the balance in terms of the U.S. economy come January, come February? I think, Zane, good morning. I think that we could be looking at a very soft economy in January and February. A lot of key benefits expire on December 31st. As you know, uh, unemployment uh, claims have been rising. And I do think the economy could get real soft during the winter before we get vaccines. And in terms of a stimulus deal, I mean, there are so many key areas to think about. But in terms of a stimulus deal, you think about, you know, the overall number in terms of the aid package. There is the amount for state, state and local funding. There is the unemployment benefit, unemployment insurance aspect of it. What do you think in terms of any stimulus deal that has passed? What is the most important element or elements, I should say, plural, uh, in order to keep the economy afloat? 
Uh, two points, Zane. First of all, I think the key variable here is the relationship between Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden. They've known each other for decades. They have respect for each other. They're not best friends. But, you know, will we see them meet? Uh, McConnell typically has been very enigmatic and closed mouthed about what he wants to do. He still hasn't acknowledged that Biden won. So that's that's a key factor. The other key factor is the dollar amount, obviously. Uh, I don't think Biden could get much more than one trillion. Nancy Pelosi wanted, you know, over two trillion. That's never going to happen. So I think they're going to have to come to some sort of agree agreement on dollar amounts just to get us through the winter. You know, 700, 800 billion would seem to be a minimum. So when you think about the landscape right now, Greg, you know, we're in a situation with rising COVID cases, more restrictions, um, businesses closing. You've also got more people filing for, for unemployment as well. I mean, in that kind of scenario, if there isn't a stimulus package, if there's isn't a stimulus deal that's passed, when Biden takes over come January 20th, what can he do at least through executive action temporarily, temporarily to help boost the economy? He can extend benefits for people who've been evicted, people who face foreclosure, things like that. Uh, there are some things he can do with executive authority, uh, but he does need a bill at some point. And I do worry that uh, the Georgia runoffs control everything. If in the Georgia runoffs, the Republicans win just one of the two seats, Mitch McConnell will be in control. And I don't think he wants to, to do a lot. If, on the other hand, the Democrats win both seats on January 5th, that means they have a decent chance of getting a much more substantive stimulus package. Yeah, it's, it's hard to know, you know, what sort of levers Joe Biden can, can pull here without knowing what the results are going to be for uh, the Georgia's uh, runoff Senate races. But in the meantime, we've got Janet Yellen as, as Treasury Secretary. What, how do you think the Yellen pick will, will help the recovery here? A tremendous pick. I think she'll win confirmation. But there's a dispute now, as you know, between Treasury, Mnuchin, and the Fed over you know, whether the Fed has to give back money that has not been spent. Uh, if they do, and it looks like they will have to give back the money and end some programs, it'll be harder to get them jump-started uh, early on after the January 20th inauguration. So I do worry. You know, Bottom line, I really worry about the economy in January, February, March. I I'm really bullish about the spring and summer with a vaccine, but we've got a long, difficult winter ahead. Yeah, it's certainly going to be a cold winter in more ways than one. Greg Vallier, live for us yeah. there. Thank you so much. All right, we'll have the opening bell after this quick break. You're watching First Move. I'm Zane Asher. See you in a couple of minutes. All right, welcome back to First Move. I'm Zane Asher. The U.S. markets are open once again after being closed yesterday because of the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, it's going to be a short trading day. The markets are only going to be open until one o'clock. But as you can see, it is a modest but positive open already. All three indices are uh, pointing to a higher open. The Nasdaq is actually already hitting a record high, continuing the incredible rally that it's had uh, so far this year. Today is, of course, Black Friday, and one of the biggest shopping traditions of the year is looking a lot different in 2020. In the U.S., many big stores that normally open at midnight did not do so, although some will hold events today against the advice of health experts. Alison Kosick is at a mall in New York. So, Alison, of course, we knew that shopping was going to be a little bit lighter today 
we are in a pandemic after all. But the question is, how much fewer traffic are we seeing across malls in America compared to this time last year? Good morning, Zane. So this is the second biggest mall in the New York City metro area, and it does not feel like Black Friday. It's pretty empty. I mean, there's more foot traffic than uh, there was a few hours ago, uh, but it certainly is not like the the crush of crowds that we're used to seeing on Black Friday. But retailers are ready just in case those crowds arrive. They've got those safety protocols in place just in case there's a line outside. There are stickers where uh, customers should stand six feet apart. Once inside, they have to wear a mask. And if they don't have one at this particular store at Abercrombie & Fitch, they'll provide you a mask. And they're limiting the number of customers who can come in. The limit is 65 people. So customers are getting acclimated to this new way of shopping on a Black Friday shopping during a pandemic and retailers are trying to get used to it as well and they've got this delicate balancing act they're trying to keep their employees their workers and customers safe while still trying to bring in uh, revenue and with that in mind they were looking to Black Friday as not just one day but they've extended Black Friday many retailers two months so we've seen Black Friday discounts begin in October throughout November and they're expected to continue through December as well not just to bring in revenue but to try to avoid getting those crowds on a day like today during a pandemic. And it's the crowds, avoidance of them, that brought shoppers who did show up here at the mall. It brought those shoppers in early, once again, to avoid the crowds. Listen to what they had to say. Um, but I'm not really in a risk category. I'm usually like older people, but um, I would say it's not really worth it for some people. But for us, um, it doesn't really make a difference. I feel good. I feel safe. I feel comfortable. I like it. There's nobody out here. It's perfect. Perfect for a shopper like me. I figured the earlier you go, the less crowd you're going to have to face. And I don't know about you, but I think I'm right in terms of the crowds here. There's very few crowds here. And despite the struggles that many Americans are going through financially, uh, the National Retail Federation expected to be a strong holiday shopping season with the expectation that we'll see anywhere from 3 to 5% more spending this year than last year. Zane? That's an interesting uh, fact there. Alison Cossack Live for us there. Thank you so much. And for those who don't venture out, online shopping is a growing viable alternative. Commerce Hub offers digital solutions for retailers and marketplaces. Home Depot, Macy's, Best Buy and Dick's Sporting Goods use its platform to generate demand, fulfill orders and help deliver products. It's actually just completed a shopping survey around Black Friday. Frank Poor is Commerce Hub's CEO and joins us live now. So, Frank, thank you so much for being with us. We're going to get to the survey in just a moment, but I'm not sure if you heard our reporter, Alison Kosick, who was at a mall in West Nyack, New York, just talking about how empty some of the stores there were. You know, for the retail sector, first you had Amazon, you know, over the last few years sort of ripping through their revenue. Then, of course, you have a pandemic in COVID. Will Black Friday, at least in-person shopping on Black Friday, will it ever be the same again? Well, it may be the same again, but um, I don't think it's going to be the same again anytime soon. This year is certainly going to be uh, e-commerce. Uh, all commerce is becoming e-commerce. Um, even if you're ordering something likely from a store, you know, the stores are probably going to benefit greatly from curbside pickup. You know, that rush for the big screen TV at a discount at midnight is, is probably over for a while, for sure. Um, but just in terms of 
you know, even if even if there is a shift to digital and a more accelerated shift to digital, just in terms of the economic landscape we're looking at, obviously we're awaiting uh, a stimulus package. A lot of Americans are awaiting a stimulus package. A lot of people uh, are dependent on that extra $1,200 in terms of a check, um, unemployment insurance. Obviously, there are people in dire straits who have lost their jobs. Is that at least going to affect even in even in the digital sector in terms of online shopping? How much will that affect how much people spend this year? You know, we'll have to wait and see how the overall aggregate totals come in. Uh, but I can tell you that will have an effect. Um, um, there's also, uh, you know, the, the market is up, obviously. And so that that creates wealth that people are able to uh, cash and spend. Um, so th- so there will be spending this holiday season. It's just shifting to online. You know, folks are going online. The gifts may become more practical uh, than previous years. Um, but 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 people still uh, are in a gift giving spirit. We're seeing the numbers uh, come in. Uh, yesterday was very, very significant for us. Um, and so we think that it's going to continue and it's going to continue online. And just in terms of the survey that Commerce Hub actually actually ran. Um, so we'll wait to see what the numbers are in terms of how much people spend. But has, has the pandemic actually affected, you mentioned practical gifts, but how much has the p- pandemic actually affected the types of gifts, the types of things that people are going to be splurging on this year? I mean, certainly it's affecting electronics and home and, uh, you know, comfort types of items, the kinds of things, you know, outdoor gear. Um, you know, there's there's all kinds of things. People are going to be wanting toys. So um, that those are the types of things we're going to see. Um, you know, a lot of folks have outfitted uh, much of their home offices. We've gotten used to doing these kinds of things. I think there will still be more uh, going on with, uh, you know, perhaps kids, uh, you know, back home from schools and, and those sorts of things. So. Uh, you know, I think we're going to continue to see the same kinds of things that we did before. And, and one thing I found interesting about the survey that, that uh, Commerce Hub carried out was uh, just the fact that, you know, p- political affiliation is now affecting the way people shop. You've got Democrats more likely to uh, avoid in-person shopping, more likely to perhaps purchase their Black Friday goods online, Republicans more likely to actually you know, go out and, and shop in person. Is that a trend that you expect to continue well into next year, at least until there's a vaccine? You know, uh, you know, I'd love uh, for everyone to come together on this thing and solve it as a national uh, problem or a global problem. Um, but there's different people with different views. And, I, you know, they, they tend to be expressed uh, in political ways. Um, so I do think that that'll continue until... Uh, much of the population uh, is immune. And so that's going to take some time. Right. Frank Paul, CEO of Commerce Hub. My friend, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Of course. Up next, as AstraZeneca's vaccine is submitted for regulatory approval, the African CDC says it fears not getting early enough access uh, to a shot. The latest on the race to get the world vaccinated. That's next. One step closer to a vaccine, AstraZeneca's candidate has been referred to Britain's medicines regulator for approval. Over the past couple of days, scientists, though, have raised concerns about the clarity and the transparency of some of the trial data released by the company. Elizabeth Cohen joins us live now. So, Elizabeth, what are experts saying that AstraZeneca should have essentially done differently in terms of the way that they uh, release their data to the public? Right. So AstraZeneca released this data last week. And when they did, they talked about a subset, um, slightly more than 2,500 study subjects who got a different dosage, a different dosage schedule than everybody else. 
What they didn't say was that that was a mistake. And that's important to know because vaccine trials they're supposed to be meticulous. And the experts that I've spoken to have said, wait a second, if they made a mistake with something as big as the dosage of the vaccine, what other mistakes might have happened? So that's one question that I'm sure regulators will be looking into. Another question is, as you mentioned, transparency. When that press release was issued, they said that on average, their vaccine was 70% effective, but they didn't show the math that got them to 70%. They just said 70%. And Pfizer showed their math Moderna showed their math. That's two other vaccine makers. A lot of questions as to why AstraZeneca is not showing their math. The third thing that regulators will want to know is that not one but two people in the trial who received the vaccine developed neurological problems. And there are lots of questions. Did those problems exist before they got the vaccine? They only showed up after the vaccine was given. What exactly happened there? Those details have certainly not been given publicly. Um, We know that some data has been shared with regulators because they allowed them to continue their clinical trials. But I'm sure that regulators will have more questions about the nature of these illnesses and if anyone else became ill. Zane? And and Elizabeth, President Trump is saying that uh, coronavirus vaccine deliveries will begin as early as next week. What more can you tell us about that? Well, what I can tell you is that this really does not seem to be correct. And I will get into why it's not correct in a second. Let's first listen to what the president had to say. We are rounding the curve. The vaccines are being delivered literally. It'll start next week and the week after. And it'll hit the frontline workers and seniors and doctors, nurses, a lot of people. So you can't deliver a vaccine until the FDA has given it authorization, right? That just makes sense. The FDA is not scheduled to have a meeting with its all-important advisory committee until December 10th. So let's take a look at a calendar. That advisory committee isn't meeting until December 10th. And the head of the FDA's vaccine branch says it will likely take weeks to make a decision or certainly days. So even if it just takes days... That's not next week. That's not the week after. It's the week after that at the very earliest. So already that's beyond President Trump's timeline. I think the bottom line here as we sort of go back and forth about what Trump's saying and is it correct is to listen to Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci told CNN, look, we are thinking that shots will go into arms in the latter half of December. So far, everything looks like that's on track. Zane? So on the one hand, you've got sort of problems with President Trump's timeline of vaccine deliveries. On the other hand, you've got this AstraZeneca, uh, AstraZeneca drug vaccine that, you know, they weren't completely forthcoming with some of the information in terms of data about their clinical trial results. So you and I have talked about this. There are a lot of people who don't necessarily fully trust, especially in this country, fully trust um, getting a vaccine. How much damage does this do? You know, I think it does a lot of damage, and I think it's really unfortunate that this all came out this way. There is already so much mistrust that when questions start to arise, it just makes people say, are they telling me the truth? I think saying what people are scared about is not so much that it won't work, but what about the side effects? If I take this shot, is it going to hurt me? That's what they're worried about. And seeing that two participants did get the vaccine and there were reports that they developed neurological problems, I think that people will 
want to see much more detail about those. Now, when we've asked AstraZeneca for details, they say, oh, we can't because of patient privacy. And when we say, well, we're not asking you to name those two people. We're not asking you to give their addresses or their ages or anything about them. But even then they say, sorry, we can't talk about this. I think that's not going to go down well with the public. Couldn't agree more. Elizabeth Cohen live for us there. Thank you so much. As AstraZeneca works to get its shot approved, Africa's CDC warns that it could be the middle of 2021 before vaccinations on the continent are broadly available. The agency's top officer says that he is concerned Africa will be left behind in the global vaccination drive. David McKenzie joins us live now uh, from Johannesburg. So how does a continent as large as Africa with over a billion people prepare for such a mass vaccination um, schedule? Well, more than 50 countries, of course, there are going to be individual nations who make individual choices. You're right there, Zane. But the Africa CDC has been pretty good so far about trying to have a collective bargaining on the continent and a shared strategy uh, for therapeutics, for testing, and now, of course, for the potential vaccine that will roll out. Uh, One of the big issues at play here is cost. The WHO says it could cost more than five billion U.S. dollars to get that vaccine to those who need it across the continent. That's money that isn't there right now, but initially they're working with the World Bank to try uh, secure more than $2 billion. Uh, and there is a sense that everyone is in it together. Uh, the key here will be uh, to work with the vaccine companies as they roll out, because, of course, from a public health standpoint, though Many countries in Africa haven't been as hard hit by this virus as uh, places in Europe and North America. Of course, you cannot get rid of a pandemic unless there is a broad vaccination or immunity uh, across the globe. Zane? And how hard will will delivery and and transportation be, do you think, especially um, to the more rural parts of various countries? Well, over the years, I've covered many vaccine drives across the continent and really, they have these logistics in place. Uh, the cold chain, which is a key mechanism of getting a vaccine out, you know, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine have to be at very cold temperatures. There is a system in place already, maybe not at the scale that we will see with the COVID-19 vaccine, but even down to the kind of village level in parts of the Congo and in Nigeria, where CNN has covered these kind of vaccine drives, uh, you literally have a fridge or at least a cold chain going on the back of a motorbike at the last stage. The key, uh, say, uh, virus experts is not necessarily the vaccine at the beginning point, but it's that last mile they talk about to continue that cold chain. And that is something they will think very carefully about on the scale that we're talking about here. Same. Right, Dave McKenzie, live for us there. Thank you so much. Coming up, a widening political rift between China and Australia as they inch closer to an all-out trade war. What the latest move could mean for Australia's winemakers. That's next. Australia is responding defiantly to a move by China that's sure to increase tensions even more between the two countries. Starting Saturday, Beijing is imposing temporary tariffs of up to 200 percent on Australian wine imports. China is accusing Australia of unfairly lowering the cost of its wine to gain market share, a process known as dumping. 
Australia says the tariffs imposed by its largest trading partner are unjustifiable and seriously concerning. Angus Watson reports. The Chinese Commerce Ministry's decision to drastically increase import duties on Australian wine into the country could be potentially devastating for one of Australia's largest agricultural export commodities. As of Saturday, Chinese importers will be forced to pay between 107.1% and 212.1% in tariffs for Australian product into the country. And it's not the first time that Chinese authorities have had Australian wine in their sights this year. In August, China launched an inquiry into alleged Australian dumping of wine onto their market and alleged unfair subsidies that Australian authorities were giving their winemakers. The Australian government, however, believes that this new move to increase import duties on Australian wine is politically motivated. This is a devastating blow to those businesses who trade with China in the wine industry. It will render unviable for many businesses their wine trade with China. Uh, and clearly we think it is unjustified and without evidence to back it up. Whichever way that you choose to look at it, the normally robust trade relationship between Australia and China has soured dramatically this year. China has already slapped added tariffs on Australian beef and Australian barley, and all the while Australian authorities say that their Chinese counterparts won't even pick up the phone to talk to them. Chinese authorities say that Australia stepped out of line when it called for an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19, and went as far as to last week furnish an Australian journalist with a list of grievances that the Chinese government has with Australia. On that list is also the striking of Huawei from Australia's 5G network and Australia's complaints over rights abuses in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. Prime Minister Scott Morrison of Australia says that he wants this matter resolved diplomatically. At the moment, it only seems to be getting worse. Angus Watson, Sydney, Australia. All right, that's it for the show. I am Zane Asher. You've, of course, been watching First Move. Have a safe and lovely weekend. Move, nobody get hurt. Okay, perfect. I am ready. Hi there. With the Dow 30,000 in the rear view, investors turn their attention back to the labor market this week. The government releases the November jobs report on Friday. In October, the unemployment rate dropped below 7% as more than 600,000 new jobs were added. But the economy is still down. Millions of jobs since the pandemic started. And weekly jobless claims spiked last week, a signal that the rising virus numbers are pressuring the labor market. But investors remain laser-focused on the future. All three major averages now posting solid gains for the year, optimism about a coronavirus vaccine and a smoother transition to the Biden presidency seem to be enough for investors to keep buying. But a likely surge in coronavirus cases after Thanksgiving and heading into Christmas could put a damper on Santa Claus rally this year. I'm Zane Asher. 
in New York. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.